Well, good evening. I'm grateful to have the privilege and honor of opening God's Word with you. So if you have your Bible, open and find the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 1. Tonight I want to think about a passage in one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Daniel. Maybe it's been a minute since you read Daniel and go, I'll read Daniel. And then you'll be coasting along for about six chapters going, this is a great book. And you'll hit chapter 7 you'll say, wait a minute. Sounds like the book of Revelation all of a sudden. But it's well worth the work to study and, and dive into it. And it's still an incredibly, incredibly relevant book today in as much as it was ever uh, from the day it was written. Because the world Daniel lived in some 600 years before Christ um, was not in every way different from the world today. The things of the world may change from generation to generation, but people don't. Human nature remains the same. Good is good and evil is evil. And no matter what century or generation you're talking about, and we're going to see tonight that uh, in Daniel 1... That the evil that Daniel faced is similar to the evil we face in the world today as followers of Christ. And likewise, the way Daniel fought against it in his life is it's instructive to us. And the New Testament encourages us to look to Old Testament saints for that encouragement and that illustration. Um, why this chapter? Why tonight? Well, I, I, I thought and I prayed and deliberated on what to, what to talk about tonight and what passage to pick. And I'm thinking, what time of year are we in? November? Of course, Thanksgiving is coming up this in just a few days, and I thought maybe passage on Thanksgiving. But then the more I thought about it, I thought it's also the month in which November is election month. And there's uh, elections going on throughout the country in, in the month of November. And I, I, it got me thinking, ours is a very political culture. Um, everything is political and politicized. Uh, I feel like just a few weeks ago they had election, state elections going on, governor elections, and not even going on in our state. But it was we were waiting with bated breath. What's what's going to be the, the the outcome of the election in Virginia and things like that? And I, the goings on in, in Washington and in state houses across the the country, I I believe are viewed in our culture with undue or at least exaggerated importance and consequence. And I don't, I don't say that just because it's wishful thinking on my part. I don't say that just because I, I'd like it to be true. Um, but Scripture, especially in places like the book of Daniel, teach us that it's true. As we, as we look at, at Daniel chapter 1, I want us to think for a few minutes on this theme, overcoming the world. And uh, so if you have found Daniel chapter 1, in your Bible, let's read it together. I'll read it aloud as you follow along. We'll read the entire chapter of Daniel 1, and then we'll dig into it. Beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, 
to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, and of good appearance and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our, let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for those four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which they in, the king inquired of them, he found them ten, ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, what we just read is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, I ask that you would give us eyes to see your truth in these words. And would you give us not just eyes to see it, but minds to understand it. Would you give us hearts to embrace it and love it? Love you through it. Would you give us wills to obey whatever it is you call us to do here? Give us all ears to hear, I pray. Give me the help that I need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not already familiar with the book of Daniel, you may read this chapter and, and you may scratch your head and say, I don't have any idea what's going on here. Who is uh, Jehoiakim? 
Who is, what is, what is Judah? Who is Nebuchadnezzar? Who is, where is Babylon? What's happening? Well, I just want to, I don't want to presume any kind of background knowledge to Daniel of, of all of you. So let me just say a few things to sort of set the stage. When you open up the book of Daniel, you are uh, situating yourself around 600 years before Christ. And 600 years before the incarnation of Christ. And Judah was all that was left at the time of Israel. Let's back up to the time of King David. When Israel was united and and prospered and and expanded greatly under under the kingship of David. And then under his son Solomon, the the kingdom expanded even even more and prospered even more. uh, But this time at a cost. Because Solomon made alliances with other nations, and uh, those, those alliances would eventually come back and bite the nation. After Solomon died, his sons who took the throne were evil, and the nation suffered and, and became very unstable, and it divided into two. And uh, it divided between north and south. And the northern kingdom were, the, were ten of the twelve tribes, retained the name Israel, and They had their own kings. They had their own place of worship because Jerusalem was in Jerusalem in the south. And so they had to worship somewhere. They made their own places of worship. The southern kingdom was called Judah. It was much smaller, just two of the 12 tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And Judah being the larger of those two tribes, it retained the name of Judah. Well, a little over 700 years before Christ, the ancient and powerful Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them off into exile and scattered the people of Israel to the four corners of their vast empire and Israel was no more. As time marched on, another powerful nation came on the scene, the Babylonians. They conquered the Assyrians and all that they had conquered and they set their, their sights to add more to it and they set their sights on Judah. Where was Babylon? Babylon was about 50 miles south of present-day Baghdad, Iraq, and Nebuchadnezzar was their king. He was impressive in many ways. Um, we, uh, he was a ruthlessly evil man. We see that in the book of Daniel. Um, he ruled the Babylonian Empire for 43 years. That's like Jimmy Carter still being the president of the United States. I heard some grumbling. Nebuchadnezzar was famous for his building projects, including the Hanging Gardens that were one of the ancient wonders of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They're no longer in existence, but I wish I could have seen them. But Nebuchadnezzar set his sights on taking over the southern kingdom of Judah. And who was king in Judah at the time? Jehoiakim. Funny name, but you can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 24, a really wicked king. Who were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? They were just ordinary guys living in Judah, in the southern kingdom. They probably had no idea, maybe less than zero idea, that we would still be talking about them 2,500 years later. But the Babylonians invaded Judah in three stages before the conquering was complete. And it was in the first stage of that siege that Daniel and his friends were carried off to Babylon. And that's where you find yourself 
when the book of Daniel begins. Ancient Israel, both northern and southern kingdoms, are no more. They are a subjugated people in exile from their homeland under a powerful and oppressive king, Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel and his friends were chosen to work for him in his palace. It's, the, the world had just turned upside down for them. Uh, it's, they were just teenagers at the time, young teenagers. I mean, you just try to, try to put your head, and what was that like for them? No doubt they felt like the whole world had just come down on them. And they would need to overcome it and to be faithful to the Lord. And that's what I want to think about tonight for just a few minutes. I want to see three things in Daniel chapter 1 that are, that are emphasized. First, if you're taking notes, we're going to think about seeing the world. Seeing the world. And how it, important it is to be clear in our minds who is in sovereign control over the events of this world. Seeing the world. Secondly, we're going to think about battling the world. Battling the world. I want us to pay careful attention to the, the kinds of things that Daniel and his friends had to fight against. It, it, it may not be what you expect, but you need to because we're still fighting the same battles. And the last thing we're going to think about is overcoming the world. I want us to see specifically how the Lord worked and provided for Daniel and his friends and met every um, need they had and how this relates to us today as well as how this points us forward to Christ as he is our Lord and Savior. So let's go back to the story. With the stage, stage sort of set for us, let's think first about seeing the world. You don't get past first, the first two verses of this opening chapter before you are presented with two starkly different ways of viewing the world. Um, let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 1 again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, that's what I described to you earlier. Nebuchadnezzar was thirsty to rule more territory. The southern kingdom of Judah was next on the list. So he went after it and he got it. That's what verse 1 says. Babylon besieged Jerusalem, the capital of the southern uh, kingdom, and in three campaigns it fell. If you had lived in that day and you were watching Fox News or you were, you were uh, watching on so the news on social media, that's what you would have gotten. Big powerful nation, small Weak nation, big conquers little. That's all the story that you get, right? But then you come to verse 2. And Daniel gives you a completely different perspective on the matter. Look at verse 2 again. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar was thirsty for more territory. Yes, the Babylonians were the supreme power in the world. Yes, they fought the battles and they won the territory and the people. But Daniel says when you pull back the curtain just a little bit, you see that it was the Lord who made it happen. The Lord gave Judah into the hands of the Babylonians. Those are two starkly different ways of understanding the world that you live in. You can see it as being ruled by uh, the most powerful people, most powerful nations, you can see it ruled by kings and presidents and congresses and parliaments and any, any, any uh, rulers of that kind. Or you can recognize that they are not a drop in the bucket compared to the sovereign 
omnipotent hand and foreordination of God. And whatever happens in the world happens by his design and his ordination and his good purpose. Is it a good thing for Daniel and his friends to be subjugated to an evil conquering nation? No. Was Daniel angry with God about it? No. Was it because Daniel thought God had nothing to do with it? No, I I suspect it it was because Daniel knew that God had everything to do with it. It was like Joseph in the book of Genesis. Was it good for his brothers to sell him into slavery? No. No. Not not because he didn't think God was involved, though. Was Joseph angry with God? No, no, not because of that. But precisely because he knew God was involved. He later told his brothers that what they meant for good for evil he meant for god meant for good god is the one who sent them there he later told it you know well the same thing's going on here in daniel god had his reasons for bringing the babylonians against judah if you had if you if you know your your old testament familiar with the story um, they had rebelled against the lord for years and years and years generations and god had told them as far back as leviticus 26 that if they faithfully served him and kept his covenant they could expect his favor and his blessing. But if they persisted in rebellion, they would experience his judgment. And I want you to notice, even as far back in Leviticus, what that judgment looked like. This is what the Lord told them in Leviticus 26, 33. God said, I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. And it happened exactly like that. Let me show you another warning that God gave them prior to this event. One of Judah's earlier kings who lived about 120 years before Jehoiakim was Hezekiah. You've probably heard of Hezekiah. God had blessed Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a godly king. Um, 2 Kings 18 says about him, 18.3, he did what was right according to the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. So God blessed him. One way that God blessed him a number of ways God blessed him. But one of the ways is God had already delivered him out of the hand of the Assyrians. You may remember that story. God, God sent an angel and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single night. Delivered him out of a seemingly hopeless situation against the Assyrians. Again, they were the world power of the day. But God literally fought the battle for Hezekiah. Again, later, Hezekiah was deathly sick, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord gave him 15 more years of life. God had blessed Hezekiah. But despite all of these things, Hezekiah, as the Babylonians were growing in power, we read in 2 Kings chapter 20 that they sent ambassadors to Hezekiah. And do you remember what Hezekiah did? He showed them all of his treasures. It says in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 13, Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. For that, Isaiah the prophet, who was alive at the time, lit into him. Why? Because these ambassadors from Babylon didn't come just to congratulate Hezekiah on 
his recovery from his sickness or, or what he was doing. No, and Hezekiah wasn't just bragging about all that he had. What was Hezekiah doing? Even though God had already saved him once from the hand of the Assyrians, Hezekiah didn't fully trust the Lord to do it again. So Hezekiah, through this charade, was seeking a political and a military uh, help for him for the, uh, by the up-and-coming Babylonians against the Assyrians. And he, when he showed them his riches and his army, he was trying to convince them that he would be a good and a, a capable ally. In, 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 in help against the Assyrians. He trusted them more than he trusted the Lord. And here's what I'm getting. Isaiah had seen enough. And look at what Isaiah told him in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's a sobering prophecy of judgment. It wouldn't happen for another 20, 120 years, but that's Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and they took away the vessels from the house of God to the house of their God. In, chapter, in verse 3, he took some of the king's household and a royal family into exile God sovereignly orchestrated the course of nations and, and human events to fulfill his word, to fulfill his purposes and all of this just goes to show you that when you look around at the world and yeah if you, if you, if you watch cable news and hear their commentary going along with it if you read, if you if you just endlessly scroll through social media, and get everyone's take on every single thing that happens in this world, everything you see, there's more going on than meets the eye. Politics are interesting. They don't rule the day. You think there are powerful nations and people in the world today? By comparison. They aren't any more powerful, or evil for that matter, than the Babylonians were in their day. Or the Assyrians before them, or the Greek and the Romans after them. Is, na name whatever strong leader you want, is, are they more, of today, are they more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar? Think carefully before you answer that. You can say, well, they... There's more powerful weaponry in, in the world today. I would say dead is dead. And you can, you can destroy a place with a bomb or you can destroy it with bows and arrows and then fire. And I would say that the latter might be, I might prefer the bomb. There are powerful and evil nations in the world, and there always will be, but God has always ruled over them, and he always will. He raised up the Babylonians. He disposed of the Babylonians. Used them for, the, for his just purposes. So Daniel gives us, in, in his first words of this book, a necessary reminder that there are two ways of seeing the world. We ought to give ourselves as 
at least equal time of hearing from God about the world he made than whatever cable news or social media tells us. This is my father's world, we sing. It was God who brought it to pass. But now that it had come to pass, let's think quickly about Daniel and his friends as they battled the new world in which they found themselves. Even as God is sovereign over the world, even, even over a sparrow falling to the ground, Jesus said, we are still to fight the good fight of the faith and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So think with me about battling the world. On the one hand, it's hard for us to imagine really what Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah had to face to really imagine it. Um, but what we see, on the other hand, when we really sit down and try to think carefully about their situation, what we find is a very clear picture of how Satan works in the world still to this day uh, to deceive us and lure us away from Christ. In that sense, there's nothing new under the sun. I want us to walk back through their situation described here in chapter 1, and, and I want you to see what I mean. First of all, as I've mentioned, I've mentioned this already, Daniel and his friends would have been very young when this started out. How do we know that? We know this from the very last verse of the chapter where we, where we read, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. There's no wasted words in Scripture. This is telling us that Daniel worked in, in this palace until Cyrus, the king of Persia, took over. That means almost 70 years. So you reason from that that if he worked there for that long, he had to start very young. Why is this important? Well, the fact that Daniel and his friends were very young when all this started is, is that that is a very impressionable time in their lives when they're young. Nebuchadnezzar thought he could easily influence them to be and to do whatever he wanted them to be and to do. Recall, that, that's, a, that's a common strategy of Satan. Think, think not just about children, but think of what, what we read in Luke chapter 4 about Jesus himself coming out of 40 days of temptation. Luke 4, 13 says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time until an opportune time. That's what Satan looks for. That's when temptations are the strongest, when we are at our weakest point, when we have our guards down, when we are most impressionable, when we're distracted by other things, when we assume that such and such would never happen to me. There are a thousand opportune times. Just as it was for Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, temptation like they had never known before, was now all around them. And they were young and at an age where these temptations would have been quite effective. What kind of, what kind of pressure might they have gotten here? Well, first of all, it wasn't just an opportune time for temptation for them. It was an opportune place. Where were they? In Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Quite probably literally the most luxurious place on planet earth at the time I've, I've been in places I've stayed in places perhaps you have too where I've, I've thought at one point I could really get used to this and um, they were at the, that point times a hundred and that was on purpose they were supposed to fall in love with the place 
And as they fell in love with the place, they had other things prepared for them. Look what else they did. They, they did three things. Verse 4 tells us that one thing they did was teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is just another name for the Babylonians. Why? They were to be taught the language and the literature. Why? To change their thinking about things. To change their worldview. Certainly learning the language, speaking a completely new language might increase the likelihood that their old life would fade in their memory and learning the literature would tempt them to forget their old beliefs they would learn to see things the way the Babylonians see things to believe what they believed forget the scriptures verse 5 tells us that they were to go through this process for three years we still face this absolutely We still, sometimes imperceptibly, allow culture to define things for us. We're just going along with the current of the culture. And um, I don't mean to keep harping on social media, but man, it's just a constant barrage. Think this way. Think this way. Um, want this, want this, want this. You need this, you need this. This is good, this is bad. In essence, we're being bombarded with what Daniel and his friends were bombarded with, just in a different form. And it's good for us to recognize what it is. But this, this, this wasn't all that they did. Once they began to change their thinking about things, they tried to make them depend on them for every good thing even for life itself how so look at verse 5 they assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank this actually did two things it tried to make them fall in love with the place even more not only is it the most comfortable place they'd ever been but the best food they'd ever eaten and notice it was the same food that the king himself ate and the same wine that he drank. I mean, like they had never eaten before. But it was also food from the king. From the king. The king assigned it to them. They were to learn everything they needed, especially the good things come from him. It, it, was, meant, it was meant for to cause them to depend on him for their well-being. And my goodness, if that temptation doesn't, still come in this form we depend on a million earthly things for our happiness even if it's peace and quiet we depend on our standard of living on our bank account balance on our team winning the ball game on our coffee in the morning on being able to do this or that we depend on them to be happy and you can tell that that's the case by how we act when we don't have it Daniel and his friends were being taught to to depend on their new masters and on the new way of being that was being forced on them. But that wasn't even the end of it. On top of all of those things, as the final measure of temptation, they tried to change their identity altogether. How? They changed their names. Look at verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. 
Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Did a pretty good job of it. Because to this day, even for most Christians, even for most Christians who read their Bible a lot, who is Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? And they're like, I don't know. Who are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They can sing a song about those guys. They gave them new names to complete the process of changing these boys from what they were to what the Babylonians wanted them to be. Forget about who you are, who you were. You have new names. Their old names called on the Lord. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. Azariah, the Lord is a helper. The new names called on the Babylonian gods. Forget about what you believe. Forget about who really provides for you. Forget about the Lord. That's the goal of all temptation. That's the battle. How many times, not just in Daniel, in the old, old and new, how many times does Scripture tell us tragically that God's people forgot the Lord? They forgot God. They didn't remember His deeds. They didn't remember His promises. What Daniel and his friends, what did they do to fight this battle? And um, They saw through it and did their very best with God's help not to give in to it. How so? Several ways. In verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. I don't, I don't believe that that just had to do with, with, uh, with Daniel abiding by Jewish food laws, as though he wanted to be that. Um, sure, the king might ask him to eat something that was against the Jewish food laws. Um, but God never commanded that they not drink wine at all. So it doesn't seem that Jewish law was what Daniel, uh, why Daniel didn't want to eat. Well, then if that's not the reason why. They didn't want to eat or drink because they didn't want to be dependent upon Nebuchadnezzar and his provision. In verse 12, it says that Daniel asked just for vegetables and water to drink, which are both things that God alone unquestionably provides. And notice that in verse 11, that when they're together, they refuse to use the Babylonian names given to them. They still use their old names. We see that again in verse 19. We see it again in chapter 2, verse 17. They never called themselves by their new names. Daniel and his friends simply tried to see the temptations for what they were. It helped them to do that by seeing the world as it really is. And to fight to remain faithful to God and what he said in his word, not just avoiding the temptation, but wholeheartedly seeking to obey God's word. That's how you fight temptation. Not by focusing on the temptation, focusing on God and his word. And what we see as they were faithful to fight is that God was faithful to them as well. Let's think about over, overcoming the world for just a moment. Verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God gave Daniel favor. Isn't that 
verse 8, Daniel resolved. Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor. Verse 17, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. And if you know the story of Daniel, you'll know that will come up again in a big way later in the book. But the point here is that God was continually giving them all that they needed to remain faithful to him. He blessed them and provided for them at every point, and he does the same for us as well. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God will always bless you and favor you as you seek to remain faithful to him. Now, I say all that to say this. I said earlier that the New Testament tells us to look back on on these Old Testament saints as examples and illustrations. And as as true as what I just said is, as it when you and we see it, verse eight, Daniel resolved that he wouldn't defile himself. Verse nine, God gave him favor. <clears throat> That's true. When you seek to be faithful to the Lord and obey his word against all temptation, God will give you favor. I read that and Sometimes I, I wake up a lot of days, and that's only so comforting to me. I know that God is faithful. Problem's not with him. It's with me. I don't always feel like a Daniel. Here's what Ian Duguid said about the, this passage that I thought worth reading. The reality for most of us is that when we look at our lives, we find that we are not like Daniel and his three friends. We are far more like the nameless multitude who were deported along with Daniel, who adopted foreign names, ate the king's food, and all together became like the Babylonians. We are not Daniels. The good news of the gospel, however, is not simply that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. It is that a Savior has come to deliver faithless and compromised saints like us. Our salvation rests not on our ability to remain undefiled by the world, but rather on the pure and undefiled offering that Jesus offered in our place. Yeah, Paul says in Romans 15 that these stories... In, in the Old Testament are given as examples for us to follow and by all means we should we should it is true uh, though that we are more like the nameless multitudes I, I don't want to I don't want to speak for you I'll speak for myself I'm more like them than I am like Daniel and it, and it's because even Daniel's life points us forward to a greater one who was able to to say more than even Daniel could say. That's Jesus Christ. Daniel could never say what Jesus said. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So follow hard in Daniel's footsteps. Follow hard after his example. Pursue faithfulness to Christ. Know that he will never leave you or forsake you. But as feeble as your faithfulness is, trust ultimately 
in Christ's faithfulness in your place. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would, as I prayed to begin with, you, you would, uh, even as we uh, walk away from this place tonight, I pray that you would help us to ruminate more and more on, on this word. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to uh, overcome the world daily in Christ follow hard after Christ not to be swayed by the temptations of the world and not to give the events of this world outsized significance in our minds but remember ever that you are, you are sovereign over all the things of, that come into our lives and kings come and go help us to be faithful but help us to remember the gospel that Jesus has overcome the world and it's him that we conquer I pray in Jesus name Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.